Acts chapter 2, verse 16. We'll pick it up right there. I heard Spencer and John talking about where they thought we were going to pick it up, and Spencer said, I think verse 17. So I want to start in verse 16. (laughs) (laughs) Acts 2, 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, or all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, Father, that is our prayer. That is our hope. That's why we gather here, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved will be saved, Lord. And I am so thankful for salvation. I am so thankful for the living hope, as Peter called it, that we have in You, Lord Jesus. So thankful for the confidence that even as we stumble and struggle along in this world, that we have a home that is waiting for us. We always have a home with You. And even as you've made your home in our hearts this day, Lord, we have a home that we are coming to. Thank you. And I pray that this message of salvation will be heard, will resonate from this place. That everybody who ever walks into the Bridge Fellowship, this building, Lord, will hear the name of Jesus and be moved to salvation. And that we as your people, Lord, would be moved to speak of this salvation again and again moment by moment in every day of our lives with with those that we come in contact with. And now, Lord, we come to You continuing on in our study of Acts seeking to understand how we are to function, how it all works. I pray that You will show us more of that this morning. Open our hearts, Father, to receive Your truth and nothing but Your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said on Wednesday night. Uh, For those of you who are here, we'll refresh a few things. For those of you who weren't, it will be new, but I I so want our entire fellowship to be on the same page. For us all to be hearing the same thing, obviously studying the same words, so we're going to slow up. I was going to do all of Peter's fantastic opening day inaugural sermon, which runs through verse 36. The Lord's holding me back on that. We'll get to that on Wednesday night. But for this morning, I want to pause right here and think about some things and consider some things that may run counter to your tradition. I know these things run counter to mine. This is one of those areas, and I've said this from time to time, that over the last several years in teaching through the Bible, my traditions have been challenged. My background has been uh, changed My perspective has changed on so many things, not because I want it to be that way, but because God's Word intends for it to be that way. And I want to do what He says, and I want to live the way He wants me to live, not the way I want to live, or the way I was raised, or the way I was taught. I want to know what He says. Often, things that I was taught growing up are right on. And I'm so thankful for that. One of the things in the tradition I grew up in was was to respect and adhere to the Word of God. Thank you, Jesus, for that in my heritage. But there are other things that I was taught, or other things I assumed as I grew, as I uh, came into adulthood, that were wrong. Some things that weren't wrong, they were just shaded differently. Uh, Some things simply denied what what the Lord had for us, had for me, and, and so... As we go through, I just say, let's see what God's Word says. Adhere to what His Spirit teaches us. And be clear about what is true. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. We read this, shared this on Wednesday night. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, listen, is liberty. 
I find it interesting what Clark shared this morning. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, is liberty, freedom. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. And Clark described being at that Catholic funeral service where there are so many rules, and he didn't know what they were. Things that you have to adhere to to follow, and he wasn't certain what those are. We have a few of those here. You know what one of them is? It's an unwritten rule. When Rick takes off his guitar, it's time to sit down for communion. (laughs) That's one of our rules. If I don't take my guitar off, you don't know what to do. Do we stay standing? Do we sit? He's still playing. He may go into another song. Oh no, what happens if I sit down? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's a silly example, but there are so many things that we do in church and in our lives to bind ourselves up. Whereas the Lord is saying, look, I came to set you free. Doesn't it sound liberating and emancipating emancipating and freeing to hear Paul say, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So why, why is the Christian life so difficult? If it's supposed to be freeing, If we're supposed to come into this fantastic, wonderful, spiritual emancipation, why is it so hard? I don't mean more difficult than the haphazard heartache and hopelessness of the world. I would far rather be a Christian in this world, even a Christian under persecution in this world, than a non-believer having to deal with life without Christ. And if that happens to be you, life is harder Without Jesus, far more difficult because you don't know really what's next. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what to hope in, where to put your trust. But in Jesus, we know these things, and yet it is still difficult for all the peace that comes through Jesus Christ, for all the hope that He offers us that far outshines the best the world has to offer. Why do so many Christians struggle in weakness? Why do so many in the church struggle with the exact same sins of non-believing people? Do the same things that non-believing people do. Why do so many believers keep it so quiet? Why does the Word get stuck in our throats? Such that we have trouble articulating our faith. If the Spirit of the Lord is liberty, why are we so bound? That's the question I want to think through a little bit this morning. For ten days... After Jesus ascended to heaven, the apostles and a group of about 120 people huddled together. They're in Jerusalem, and they prayed, and they waited, as the Lord had instructed. He didn't say how long it would be. He just said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And so they waited. For all they knew, it could have been a year, two years, four years, ten years. They didn't know. They were just told to wait, and so they waited, and so they prayed. But on the Jewish Feast of Weeks, Shavuot in the Hebrew... Pentecost in the Greek, on that day, everything changed. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. We talked about, by the way, Wednesday night, what Pentecost was, what the Feast of Shavuot was, and you need to hear that. You need to know that. It was not a random choice for the Spirit to come on Shavuot, on Pentecost. I won't get into that this morning, but it's fascinating. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now again, I said 120 people gathered together in that house. And we read house and we think, 120 people. I couldn't fit 120 people in my house. I couldn't do it. Now I have stood in the so-called upper room that the tour guides of Israel love to take people to. 
You get 120 people in there, it's kind of packed and a little annoying when one group's singing a song and you want to sing something else. For crying out loud, we're Christians here. Give me a break. You guys sing what we're going to sing or go somewhere else. 120 people in one room. Well, I don't think it was one room. And as I shared Wednesday night, I think the house is the house of the Lord. They're in the temple. It's entirely likely that they were in an upper chamber of the temple when this violent rushing wind filled the house, I think, personally, the house of God. Here comes this, this mighty rushing wind. That word violent is also mighty or forceful, like a tornado. It comes rushing in, and suddenly there's a, an appearance of tongues of fire. Only here in the New Testament do we see that. And I believe it was to confirm the words which were about to be spoken and the words which were spoken to confirm to all those who saw what was taking place something supernatural is going on. These guys aren't just talking. There's tongues of fire above their heads. There's a mighty rushing wind. Something more than human, more than natural is taking place here. And as the the people gathered were speaking... As the tongues of fire were settled in this supernatural moment, it says they were speaking as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They weren't saying what they were thinking. They were saying what the Spirit intended. The word utterance means to speak out from. And the from indicates the source of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is speaking through them. They are speaking out from the Spirit. By the way... While we assume that it was the twelve apostles with twelve tongues of fire speaking, it may have been the entire 120. The Bible isn't specific on that point. It may have been all the disciples gathered there, at that point at least, who were speaking in tongues with the tongues of fire. I don't know, I'm not trying to rock your world with that. It's not going to affect anybody's salvation, just a thought. It doesn't say just the twelve. Now it may have been just the twelve. But what's amazing is what they spoke. As the Spirit gave them utterance, they articulated in some 16 different languages and dialects, at least as listed here in Acts chapter 2, we're told in verse 11, they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. That's what was coming out of their mouths. That's what they were saying. They were talking about the mighty deeds of God. Perhaps the resurrection of Jesus. The most recent mighty deed of God. And they're speaking out these mighty deeds and they're worshiping the Lord and the words were not stuck in their throats. They had no problem speaking what the Spirit gave them utterance to speak. And by the way, none of them were in a trance or a state of emotional fervor. They hadn't whipped themselves up for this. There were no chandeliers from which to swing. They weren't rolling on the ground. They were worshiping the Lord. They were praising God, which is what declaring the mighty deeds of God is. It's worship. It's what we do when we worship. We declare His greatness and His grandeur and His splendor and His wonder. It's worship. And so they are worshiping as they speak. And as they worship, please understand this, they had complete self-control. They were not out of control. Well, how do you know that? Because I happen to know in the list of the fruit of the Spirit that the final fruit of the Spirit is self-control. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on a person, they don't lose control of themselves. They have complete control. I would say even more control, more measured, because they have the wisdom of the Spirit going on now. So for those of you frightened by the idea of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, understand you have complete control. The Bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You can speak or not. That's, that's your call. But in this case, the spirit was giving them words to speak. The Holy Spirit does not commandeer. He leads. He guides. He draws us forward. And He does so where He is welcome to do so. And just as Jesus had promised ten days earlier, in this moment, in Acts chapter 2, what we see, what we read about, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The apostles at this point, the disciples, were baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
How do you know they were baptized with the Holy Spirit? Because they had already received the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20, verse 22. I remind you again, they received the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 tells us that they had been instructed by the Holy Spirit. Now, something different is happening. And as I said, something obviously, clearly, absolutely supernatural is taking place in the temple on that day, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But listen, here's the idea. Here's the point. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the game changer. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the game changer. What do you mean? With the baptism of the Spirit comes the power by which the church, this new breed of people that we talked about last week, could and would function. You've got to stay with me this morning. Because throughout the book of Acts, Luke gives us overwhelming evidence of this power, of this supernatural power at work in and through the young church. Acts chapter 13 verse 52 tells us the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let me go back to the original question. Are we missing something? They were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Are you? Am I? Why in these days does it seem like so many are weak? Weak in conviction? Weak in confidence? Weak in understanding? I'm going to ask you three questions. Same three questions that I asked on Wednesday night. Again, because I want the whole church to hear this, the whole fellowship. I ended with these three questions. And by the way, if you were not able to be here on Wednesday night, I strongly encourage you more than any time before to go and listen to the teaching. To track it through. Here are the questions. Question number one. Do you know, and I'm talking to believers here, do you know when you first accepted or received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you know? Most would say, yes. Absolutely, yes, I remember. Some have forgotten in between, but when we think about it, we can go back to that time. Yes, that was the time I know that I know that I received Jesus as Lord and Savior. I remember that. Okay, so the second question, which is the exact same Peter that Paul asked a group of disciples in Acts chapter 19, verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I remember when I believed in Jesus for the first time, did I receive the Holy Spirit when I believed? Do you know that you did? Now what's interesting is less people answer yes to that. Should be the same. You know, for those who receive the Lord as Savior, Jesus as Lord and Savior, and those who have received the Holy Spirit should be the same answer. Yes, yes on both. But many Christians can't say yes to both. Question number three. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Some would jump up and say, Yes, absolutely, I know, I can tell you when. Others would say... I'm not even sure what that means. And if that means some of what I've seen in the church, I don't want it. Do you know when you first accepted the Lord? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Listen, please listen to me. If you can only affirm yes to questions one and or two, but you cannot affirm the third question, you do not know if you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit or you know that you have not. Listen to me. You're not less of a believer. You are not less saved. You are no less righteous. You are no less important to Jesus, but you're not running on full power. You're not running on full power. I believe this is why among Christians that freedom becomes frenzy. That liberty gets lost in the shuffle of life. That when we're called to do things, we don't know how we can because we just don't have the power. 
We're like Scotty in Star Trek. Scotty, get those engines running. Cutting, I just don't have the power. You know? How soon do you need it? 30 seconds. Hi. <laughs> just don't have the power. And maybe that's the problem. Power. Power is a word that a lot of believers struggle with, isn't it? Because aren't we told to be meek and humble and gentle and kind and to have self-control? Aren't we told that God is not a God of confusion? And you're talking about this baptism of the Holy Spirit and this power thing, Rick, which just sounds to me like something other than what we're supposed to be. And i got to tell you, I have struggled with the word power in Scripture all my life. Except when applied to Jesus. Hey, right on. Jesus felt power go out from Him. I'm one of the first ones on the 50-yard line going, Go, Jesus! Yeah! Power coming out because He's a powerful God. And I accept and believe in that. And then Jesus says, Rick, I want you to have that power. And I'm like, huh? I don't know what that means, Lord. I don't know how that applies. I hear power and I think of Darth Vader. You don't know the power of the dark side. I don't want to know the power of the dark side. My son Corey has a great t-shirt. It says, it's Darth Vader speaking. It says, come to the dark side. We have cookies. (laughs) Star Wars quotes, Star Trek quotes. I'm really geeking out here, but I'm trying to make a point. A point about... Power, Because listen, what we see taking place in Acts chapter 2 is what Jesus described to the apostles as power. There's no other word for it. Look in your Bibles back at Acts chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus speaking. And he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, immersed, soaked, drenched is the word with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, that sounds good. What does that mean, Lord? He defines it in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You will receive power, power, power. The word is dunamis in the Greek. Dunamis it. And maybe this will help you. It also means virtue. It also means strength. How many times have you prayed to the Lord for strength? Just to get through the day. Strength just to deal with a situation. Strength just to hold on when you don't feel like you can. And maybe you're not used to saying, God, I need your power and I need it now. Maybe you're more used to saying, Lord, I don't have the strength. Well, the word dunamis means strength. And it finally made sense to me that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about strength. Isaiah describes the Holy Spirit this way. Isaiah 11.2 The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and what? Strength. Strength. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now when I read that list to any believer, I don't care what your tradition, everyone I read that list to would say, yes, I want that. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, all balanced out by the fear of the Lord. That sounds good to me. It's the power word that so many struggle with. Because God said, not by might, nor by power, Zechariah 4, 6, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Do you see what He's saying here? Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, because the Spirit is the power. The Spirit is might. The Spirit is strength. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. Okay, I know how that feels. He says, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Yeah, I know how that feels. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 
We are called to be emissaries embodied by that power so that when people come to the Lord, they don't come to the Rick. (laughs) They don't come to the you or the me. They come to Jesus. Because what they see in us is not us. It's better than us. It's greater than us. It's stronger than us. It's the Lord's power. I'm weak. But He is strong. The weakness and the fear and the trembling that I see so much felt among believers today, I think is because we are trying to run on our own limited power. And it's just not enough. You will not be strong enough. And you will continue to struggle all of your life. Limited human power, human intuition will only take you so far. Human ideas, some are good, some are bad. Human personalities that people will follow after. Human exceptionalism, rather than drinking our fill of the living water, as Jesus described, the Spirit of the living God. Let me give you an example of this. Last Monday... Cheryl and Naomi and David and I drove Corey back up to Bellingham. Corey, my older son, he's 25. He's going to school. He's working up there. So we went to move him into his new apartment. And after we had done that, when you come out of uh, Western University there, there's a Woods Coffee that I know very well. They know me too. And we always stop off at Woods Coffee and get a cup of coffee for coming home. So I got my typical cup of coffee. Actually, I got a cold brew. Not beer. It's a new thing they're doing now where they brew it overnight and it's cold coffee. It was pretty good. I got that. Cheryl got some kind of sweet, flowery coffee deal. And David and Naomi wanted theirs. Well, I'm not going to give them caffeine. I'm not about to give them caffeine. Trust me. Because right now, they're both running on full power. (laughs) However, what we did give them was a... Because I was dad's having a cold coffee, they wanted a cold chocolate. So we got them each a cup of cold chocolate. And then we went down to Costco. And by the time we got to Costco, they were wired. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I mean, running up and down the aisles. You know, if they were at church, I would have been kicked out. You know, a long time. They're running up and down and around the cart and around the cart. You know, and, and David especially was just spastic. David is not a spaz. He was on Monday. Running around crazy, hopped up on cold chocolate. And then we got home that evening, and within five minutes, they were flat on the couch. They were done. They were sprawled. They were nearly comatose. I'm like, kids, bedtime. Uh." Because, listen, worldly power wears off. It always wears off. You might get it physically through chocolate or caffeine or sugar. You know the sugar high always crashes, always wears off. But I'm telling you, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, the power of the world wears off, wears you down, runs you out. And you end up weak once again. The best strength that the world has to offer is going to leave you in a massive sugar crash. Yet, Isaiah says, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, they will be satisfied. And the power, the strength of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, my friends, it is a lasting power. You don't sugar crash on the Spirit of God. You don't run out, you don't get weak and... and just can't make it anymore. The power of the Spirit is a power that lasts. And we have the perfect model of this in Jesus Christ. Rick, you haven't even gotten back to Acts 2 yet. I know. The power of the baptism of the Spirit. This is what I want you to think about. And we need to, we need to understand it or stay weak. Jesus modeled what it looks like. I love this about the Lord. That when He came as God in the flesh, not only does He show us a human perspective of God, but He shows us how we as humans are to be toward God. He walked it out for us in every way. Luke 3.21 says, When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. 
And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Jesus already had the Holy Spirit. Understand that. The Holy Spirit already indwelled Jesus because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So he already was filled with the Spirit, you could say. But now the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Okay, then what happened? Luke chapter 4 verse 1 said, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And in Luke 4.14 it says, And Jesus then after that returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Didn't He have the power of the Spirit before? I don't think He did. Uh, Oh, don't get me wrong. He was fully God and fully man prior to His baptism. Prior to that moment. But He limited Himself in the same way that we would be limited until the Spirit came upon Him in power so that He could show us this is what it's like. This is how it works. The Spirit comes upon you in power and now you function in the power of the Spirit. And as I said a moment ago, Jesus did not only reveal God to man, but man in a right relationship with God, the way we can be, the way we should be, at full power. But we keep running on half power. And I'll tell you what, if we're running on half power simply because our tradition tells us otherwise, that's a big mistake. There are some things as an adult that I love to eat as a kid I never would. As a kid, it was my tradition not to eat those things. Think about all the wonderful food that you would miss now if you were still basing it on that, well, as a kid, I only ate hot dogs and macaroni and cheese. So that's my diet. Talk about half power. (laughs) Are you functioning on half power? Some would say, you know what? Half power suits me just fine. Thank you very much. I'm okay with half power. Because I don't want to be rolling around in the aisles. I don't want to be one of those weird Christians. I just want to be a Christian, live my life quietly, leave me alone. Who said anything about rolling around in the aisles? Scripture doesn't. Remember the ninth fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Remember what I said? 1 Corinthians 14.32 The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. See, only with Jesus do you have perfect peace, absolute self-control, and absolute power. Full power. Again, some might say, I'm content to be as I am. And if that's you, I would say that may be fine for you. But what if someone is remaining lost today because you're only functioning at half power, content to be so? And maybe that's another thing we haven't thought about, I hadn't thought about. If I function comfortably in my tradition, and that tradition, and that half power keeps me from the calling on my life to take Jesus to somebody else, and someone ends up lost because of it, You see, this power issue of the Holy Spirit is not about me. And I believe I've told you this before. Jesus says, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power, the dunamis, that is about witnessing. It's about becoming a witness for Christ in everything you do, the way you live your life, the way you worship, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you interact with people is all about Him at full power with the dunamis of the baptism of the Spirit that more people might be saved and yet some say, no, I'm content the way I am. And I say, well, the way you are may, may cost someone their salvation. Maybe the power really isn't about you at all. Okay, there's your introduction. Let's see how this plays out. Let's see how this plays out very quickly as Peter, filled with and baptized in, the Holy Spirit now begins to preach. Look at verse 16 again. Peter standing up says, This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now understand, that's the text of his sermon. As we do in here on Sundays, I I will always read the text first, and then we go back and talk about it and work our way through it. That's what Peter's doing. Now, he's not going to go back and work his way through it so much as he's presenting the text to explain what's happening. That the people gathered there, and we know it was thousands because we'll see on Wednesday night at least, 3,000 of them got saved. So thousands of people show up, thousands of people are listening, and to this massive group of people, Peter begins to preach and tell them, here's what's going on. It's what the prophet Joel said. But immediately we notice two things as Peter starts preaching. Number one, Peter's no longer speaking in tongues. All the apostles were together speaking in tongues, but I believe this teaching heard by the thousands, is in the common tongue of Koinonia Greek. How do you know that? Well, I'm kind of a simple guy, and it's written that way. It's written in Koinonia Greek. Now what's interesting is we're not told, with the exception of the the description of the speaking in tongues that was going on before, that they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God, but we're not told what was exactly said. They were speaking in tongues. People heard them in all their different languages and dialects, blew them away, and then Peter begins to preach. But more significantly than the fact it was written in Koinonia Greek, and you might say, Rick, that's kind of weak. I think Peter was perhaps still speaking in tongues, so everybody heard in their dialect. Understand also that everybody gathered there spoke the common language. They just had their other languages as well. And what's going on more significantly, the reason I don't think that Peter is speaking in tongues now, but is simply just speaking directly in the language of the common man, is that the content is different than what was spoken by the disciples. The content is now different. There's been a slight change. Again, back in verse 11, they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They were worshiping. They were lifting up the Lord. And we're going to talk more about speaking in tongues as we continue in Acts because (laughs) you can't avoid it. Try being a pastor teaching through Acts and see how you get around speaking in tongues. Can't do it. So we're going to deal with that as an issue, as an understanding. We're going to talk about what that means more as we get further into the book. But for now, note this. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, One who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Peter is now speaking to men. The disciples previously, right before he begins, he stands up and starts to speak, were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. I I believe they were worshiping. They were speaking to God. Their speaking was God-word. Peter's speaking is now man-word. He is now focusing on them giving explanation and understanding. Paul goes on, he says, One who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. That's part of the whole idea of speaking in tongues is it really builds you up. And yet one who prophesies, which is what Peter is now doing, speaks to the church, edifies the church. Now I want to go on record as saying nothing is more personally edifying than speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And perhaps you understand that when we worship. Nothing is more encouraging. When I'm down, when I'm weak, when I'm struggling... I remember one time driving along in my car, and in fact, I think a few years ago I may have even told you about this. Driving along in my car, and I was listening to a Michael W. Smith album, and it's the album Lead Me, Lead Me Home, I think was the name of the album. Gets down into it, and there's a song that's based on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name in all the earth. I'm driving along, I'm having a hard day, that song comes on, and tears start pouring down my face. Why? Because suddenly my heart was lifted up Godward. Suddenly now I'm thinking of, I'm focused on the mighty deeds of God, and I was immediately and personally edified. Michael W. Smith wasn't preaching to me. He wasn't giving me explanation. He was just declaring the prayer of Jesus, and it was awesome. And it was wonderful. And that is what speaking in tongues 
does, it edifies the person. And when I'm down, and when I'm discouraged, and take this as a note, when I'm weak or troubled, praying in the Spirit recalls to my spirit the mighty deeds of God. In Psalm 77, Asaph writes of a, of a dark, difficult, depressing night. You read the psalm, and it's, it's actually a very encouraging psalm, but the first ten verses or so, he talks about, my eyes are dry. And my tongue is cleaving to the roof of my mouth. And I've got no words and I've got nothing to speak. And do you hear me? Are you even there, Lord? And then he says, Psalm 77, verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on your work and muse on your deeds. The word muse in the Hebrew is siach. And it means to make prayerful utterance. Praying in the Spirit, perhaps. I'm going to muse now. I'm going to make prayerful utterance of your deeds. And so, so he's doing this. Asaph is in Psalm 77. He, he's, he's thinking about, he's recalling to mind, he's musing on the wonders and the deeds of God, and it encourages him. That's what it does. But get this. Tongues are always for the purpose of glorifying God, not man. Speaking in tongues is never for the purpose of glorifying man. And yet I think we see that on occasion in the church. Tongues are not the Christian answer to tarot cards or ESP or palm reading. They're about the glory of God. I don't think Peter is now speaking in tongues. I think he's speaking just clearly. He is speaking directly to the people in the common language. Because now the content is about explanation, and that's what he's doing. You can disagree with me on that, and, and that's okay. You know, you don't always have to be right. <laughs> but the second thing to note is that Peter is not making this up on the spot. Peter is quoting Joel two twenty-eight through thirty-two. That's where this this quotation comes from. It's direct. And what I love about this moment is Peter doesn't say, John, grab that scroll. No, not that one, the other one. The, the, the Joel. Come on, get free. Come on, people are waiting. Get the scroll out, John. <laughs> he doesn't read from a scroll. He doesn't pull a Bible out of his backpack. He doesn't log on to his Logos Bible study app on his iPad. He knows the Word. Peter the fisherman knows the Word. And when the Spirit gives utterance, please note this, it is often directly out of the Word of God. And it is always biblically sound. If the utterance is of the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit is inspiring the words, if He is the one speaking, if He's the one from whom the speaker is speaking and making utterance, it is often the very words of God right out of Scripture, and it is always in line with Scripture. So, again, we're laying foundation for understanding here. If it ain't biblical, it ain't the Spirit. If it contradicts Scripture, it's not the Spirit of the Lord because He will not contradict Himself. If it's some new weird thing, if it doesn't jibe with the Word of God, you can discount it as counterfeit. And by the way, the next time we see a spirit-shaking experience in the book of Acts, similar but not exactly to what we see in Acts chapter 2, it's in Acts chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, listen, the Word of God with boldness. spoke the Word of God. And that's what Peter is doing. And in verse 16, he says, This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, that is, on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Wait a minute, wait a minute. When did the last days get underway? When did the last days actually begin? Right here. Right here. Peter just kicked open the door. And so we are at the very front end 
of the last days. And what Peter does is he ties in the prophecy of Joel to this moment in time. Which causes a problem for some. Because we hear that and go, okay, wait a minute. Haven't haven't I heard you, Pastor, say that we are in the last days right now? But, But Peter's quoting Joel saying this is what he was talking about. And you Bible students, you know exactly where I'm going with this. Of course we're in the last days right now. And so was Peter. Beginning and end. Beginning and end. I'll explain more in just a second. But I need to say this. Jesus never limited His power supply to the apostles or the disciples of the first century. He offered His power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, His strength to the church of the last days. And this is where traditions go head to head. This is where Christians duke it out on the truth and some say, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit was only for the apostles and ended with them. And I would say, no, the Holy Spirit is for the church of the last days, beginning with the apostles. But guess what? We are still in the last days. And part of the reason we run at half power and we are weakened in the church is because so many believe that that power was only for them. Show me chapter and verse. Show me scripturally where the Bible declares that the power of the Holy Spirit was limited to a single generation in the entire last days of the church. You can't find it. Spirit was poured out in power then in the last days. We are in the last days. The Spirit is still relevant. His power is still offered to us today. Verse 17, one more time. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And that word is all flesh. In the Hebrew, it's basar. In the Greek, and we saw this word in John 1.14, the word became flesh. The Greek word is sarks. And it is the most Base, it literally means soft tissue. Sarks. Uh, Basar. Soft tissue. Literal flesh. Actual flesh. And he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. What a strange thing for the prophet Joel to declare. How weird would that have been for a prophet of Israel to quote God as saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not only Jews. But Jew and Gentile alike. And by the way, you may note that uh, Luke mentioned back at the end of verse 10 that there were Jews and Gentiles present. Jews and proselytes, that is Gentiles who had become Jews by faith. Who had desired to become included in the commonwealth of Israel by faith. The point is this. This is the beginning of the outpouring. The soaking, the immersing, the drenching power of the Spirit of God over those who seek Him both then and now. You might say, okay, but I have a problem again. How can Peter say this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? A, isn't it supposed to be for Israel? So now it's all flesh. And B, isn't it much bigger than what happened? Hmm. Better read it again. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Okay, I have no problem with that. Read on, Rick. All right. Verse 19. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And verses 18 and 19 are the problem. Because on Pentecost, it did not happen. On that day, yes, they spoke with new tongues. Yes, the Spirit was poured out. Yes, there was prophecy and vision and dreaming. And all of that took place. But wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, did not happen. The sun turned to darkness, total eclipse, the the moon turned to blood, blood moons. This year, 
We've seen three out of four blood moons, and right in the middle between the second and the third blood moon, we had a total eclipse. What does that mean, Rick? Wait and see. (laughs) Blood moon enthusiasts, let me say something to you. We talked about this actually back at the beginning of the year, but those who wonder if the current blood moon tetrad, four blood moons in a row spanned over a period of time, the current tetrad concluding on September 28th, which by the way is Sukkot, it's the last major feast of Israel for the year, there are those who wonder if that might signal the rapture of the church. I'm waiting for the blood moon so we can go. Historically, the blood moons seem to occur with reference to Israel, not the church. So what I'm really looking for, if there is something to these blood moons, and I, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of cautious with this stuff, but if there's something to these blood moons, what I'm looking for is something to happen with Israel. Which makes going to Israel this spring all the more exciting. I don't know what's going to take place. I don't know the timing of these things. I know the season we're in, and as I said before, we're in the last of the last days. And this is a key to this last day's prophecy. Listen. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the power, the strength, the anointing, it will end just as it began with Israel. It began with Israel. The outpouring was in Jerusalem. It was to Jewish people. Yes, there were proselytes present. Yes, there were Gentiles there. But it was for and about and to Israel. That's where the Holy Spirit began to be poured out. Yes, it's the first day of the church. But the promise given through the prophet Joel was to Israel first. As Paul writes in in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The last days begins with Israel. It will end with Israel. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit began with Israel. It will end with Israel. It was primarily Jews who received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, on Shavuot. It will be Jews completely who received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit again at the tail end of these last days. What Joel referenced, what he foretold 2,800 years ago, and Peter preached as the beginning 2,000 years ago, was the inauguration of the new covenant. Now, I'm going to move really quickly, but you might want to jot a few things down here at the end about the new covenant. Quickly jot this down as you write, I'm going to read. The first thing to jot down is the new covenant prophesied. The new covenant prophesied. Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, through Jeremiah the prophet to his people Israel. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more the new covenant. I'm going to give you a new covenant, he says to Israel. And it's prophesied there through Jeremiah. And Ezekiel picks up on the same thing. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, he says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So get this new covenant prophecy down. Joel says, here's what it will look like when it comes. I will pour out my spirit. Jeremiah says, here's what it is. The new covenant. The inauguration of the new covenant. And Ezekiel says, here's how it works. When we look at the prophets together, what we understand is the Lord is saying, I will put my spirit in and upon you. And that happened at Pentecost. It began at Pentecost on the primarily Jewish element there. 
The new covenant prophesied. But before that happened, the new covenant was ratified. That is, a final confirmation is made by Jesus Himself, Luke 22.19, when He had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and said to them, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in My blood. He passed it around. They drank of it. So that which was prophesied is now the new covenant ratified. Number three, the new covenant is satisfied. John 19.30 When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. Tetelestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the new covenant, the payment, was satisfied. Hebrews 9.15 says, He is the mediator of the new covenant. So that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Listen, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. The new covenant satisfied. So are you with me? The new covenant was prophesied. That's what Ezekiel said. That's what Jeremiah said. That's what Joel said. Then the new covenant was ratified by Jesus at the Last Supper. Then satisfied in Jesus in His death. And now, now in Acts chapter 2, the new covenant is galvanized. The new covenant goes into effect, begins to roll. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, things get moving, but only as far as verse 18. And that's what we need to recognize. Only as far as verse 18. Verses 19 and 20 have not taken place yet. From Pentecost to this day is verse 17 and 18. Verses 19 and 20 is that which will occur at the end of the last days. Verse 21 is an ongoing occurrence throughout the whole thing. People are still calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. So what we have here in this moment as Peter is preaching is we have the partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Not the whole thing, but half of it. It begins. Peter says this is where it starts. He's not saying the whole thing is going to be fulfilled in that day. Otherwise the sun would have gone dark and the moon would turn to blood. And there would be power, vapor, and smoke, and all kinds of things going on. And that didn't happen. Peter is referencing the prophecy to say this begins the last days. But it will also end the last days as well when, number five, the new covenant is finalized. The new covenant finalized. And as I said, it will end as it began with Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What I'm saying to you here is that Israel bookends the last days. Israel begins the last days. Israel ends the last days. The Spirit is poured out on Israel at the beginning of the last days. The Spirit will be poured out on Israel at the end of the last days. What does that mean right now? It means that we are in the midst of the outpouring. That we are still in the outpouring that began with Israel and will end with Israel. We're in the midst of that. Actually, we're close to the end of it, but still within it. And I reject the notion that the power of the Holy Spirit must decrease. I reject that. The power of the Holy Spirit will only decrease as we quench that power as we reject it we are in the middle of the outpouring and whether you're at the beginning or the end of it if you're in it you are in it are you in it as Randy Jackson used to say to win it are you in it to win it the promise is no less for you now than it was for the apostles then than it was for the disciples then, than it was for all flesh, God said. I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Not on 120. Not on just 12. Not only on the early church. All flesh, He says. And that is unlimited by time. 
the power is no less potent today than it was then than he was on Pentecost. And what was the promise of that power? Give me two minutes, we're done. Acts 17, 2.17 The promise is your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What does that mean? It means they'll speak the word with boldness to edify, to exhort, to comfort. That's Paul's definition of prophecy. Edification, exhortation, and consolation or comfort. We will speak the word. We will prophesy the word of God with boldness. That's what the sons and daughters will do who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, and your young men shall see visions. Young men. Are you getting visions for what God has for your lives? Are you seeing what He can accomplish through you? Jaden? Are you seeing what God might accomplish through you in your life? You're a young, your dad's an old man. You are a young man. You are who he's talking about. And all you, you young guys, are you seeing... i, I got to tell you, I see a lot of daughters with vision. I see a lot of daughters right now with vision. Girls going out, going on mission, receiving the call of God, doing things with their lives. And I'm wondering, where are the young men? It's about time for some of you young men to start picking up the baton of prophecy and vision and running it with it. We need our young men to reject the world's idea of power, to trumpet, so to speak. (laughs) And to start running on the full power of the Holy Spirit. We need some young men who will say, yes, Lord, I'll stand up. Yes, Lord, I will go. Yes, Lord, I'll be a part of that. Well, what about the girls? You know what? The girls can go too. And the girls will go too. But like I said, I'm already seeing the girls go. I think it's more natural for the girls to stand up and be a little more vivacious with the Spirit. Young men, have some vision. He says part of this outpouring of the Spirit, your old men shall dream dreams. Old boys, listen up. It is not time to stop dreaming. Senior saints, guys my age and older, and I don't know where I fall on this to be honest. Sometimes I have visions, other days it's dreams. Thank you. Maybe that's why I woke up this morning going, dreams. Listen, older guys, Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord! The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Old guys, that's what it means to dream. We are glad in the Lord. I don't care if you're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. Be glad in the Lord. In the days of the outpouring of the Spirit, the old men are still dreaming. Still dreaming. Vision still going on. Verse 18, now note this. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. We shall, just as on the day of Pentecost, speak the Word of God, verse 4 tells us, as the Spirit gives us utterance. As the Spirit speaks through us. But did you see it? Did you note what He said in verse 18? Who does He pour forth of His Spirit on? In verse 18. Bond slaves. Bond slaves. What do you mean, Rick? These are not the power brokers. These are not the strong men. These are the bond slaves. These are the weak. The subservient. Those who function under authority, but by the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. He chooses the weakest people in society and says, that's a picture of the people who need my spirit, who need my dunamis. Because guess what? You don't have the power in yourself. You don't have the strength to do what I'm calling you to do, the Lord would say. And so I'm going to pour out my spirit on my bond slaves. 
that they will have power to do my will. And the new covenant now has been prophesied, ratified, satisfied, and galvanized. And soon, my friends, we're going to see it. We're going to see it gratified. As it is finalized in the coming of Jesus, would you run at full power? Then my prayer for you is what Paul wrote, Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we need Your power desperately in these days. We need Your strength, Lord. Lord, we need to know how to have vision. How to dream dreams. We need Holy Spirit of the living God to be set free from our flesh and our limitations that we might do what you've called us to do here in these last days. And Father, I pray and I ask that you will encourage our fellowship to trust you, to seek your word, And not to be hearers of the word only, but doers of your word by the dunamis, the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have our prayer team come on. Let's stand together. You know what? Respond to the Lord. Don't stay standing still. Respond to the Lord. As he calls you.